Good morning, everyone. If we haven't met, my name is Tom Barrett, one of the ministers here. My job this morning is to be your tour guide as we take a tour through Esther chapters 3 and 4. How about we pray together as we get started? Sovereign Lord, we know that you've inspired all the scriptures for the purpose of teaching us, training us and encouraging us. And so we ask that you would open our eyes this morning to see what you want us to see, to see how you are at work in the events we read about and in our world today. Train us to live faithfully and courageously as your people. Amen. So we're in week two of our tour of Esther. We're in the Old Testament. The action here is set in the period between 483 and 473 BC. And when we opened up this book last week, we found ourselves amidst one of the great empires of world history, the Persian Empire. Vast wealth and power, glittering beauty, but with a seedy underbelly. The empire was a place where money and power is used for self-glorification and self-satisfaction where power is used to gain sex and sex is used to gain power. And to be honest, it made me think of Hollywood. What we see is the kingdom of this world. You might have found it pretty confronting as we saw this empire in action last week. Sometimes we need the Bible to remind us that this is the kind of world that we live in. And this is the kind of world in which God does his work. We need to remember on the one hand that the evil in the world doesn't stop God from being at work. But on the other hand, the fact that God's at work doesn't make the evil any less evil. Anyway, the reason we have this confronting empire described in the Bible is because within it lived the Old Testament people of God. The Israelites, who by this stage were known as Jews. These were God's covenant people. He bound them to himself. He promised to achieve his saving purposes through them. Their sad history of disobedience and unfaithfulness meant that they'd become dispersed as exiles throughout this worldly empire. The Jewish characters that we met last week were Mordecai and Esther, as Gloria mentioned. Esther ended up becoming the queen of Persia. And as she swept up into the royal scene, Mordecai tells her, to keep her Jewish identity under wraps. Fly under the radar is his instruction. Now, in principle, this is not the right thing to do. But this is not a book about people who always do the right thing. Mordecai's instruction to Esther gives us a clue that within this powerful worldly empire, there are some who are very hostile to the people of God. And as we read chapter 3 today, we met one of those people. There's this guy, Haman. He gets promoted to high office in the empire, head of government, prime minister, second in command to King Xerxes himself. And this is a problem. Our first thought might be, yes, it's a problem because it's unfair. At the end of the last chapter, Mordecai is the one who saved the king's life. Surely he deserved a promotion, but he's been overlooked for recognition and reward. We might think that, but actually that's not the real problem. 
The real problem is that Haman is an Agagite. Now, we're 21st century Australians. That word just kind of passes us by some ancient people group we've never heard of. There's lots of them mentioned in the Bible. But to ancient Jewish people like Mordecai and Esther, that word Agagite is very significant. You might remember how last week we learned that Mordecai was descended from a guy called Kish, which made him a relative of the first king of Israel, King Saul. Well, when Haman is labelled as an Agagite, that connects him to another king, a guy called Agag, who had been king at the same time as Saul, but he was king of the Amalekites. It goes kind of like that. The Amalekites had been violent aggressors against the people of God since day dot. The Israelites really began as a nation when God rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And as they emerged out of Egypt and made their way through the desert with women and children and livestock in tow, suddenly they were attacked. This is in Exodus 17. They were just passing through the region, but the Amalekites came out to do battle with them, unprovoked. And this was the beginning of a long-standing enmity between these two groups. Once the Israelites were settled in the promised land, the Amalekites continued to attack them, steal their produce here, drive them off their farms over there. Mordecai's ancestor, King Saul, had fought serious battles against Haman's ancestor, King Agag. The two groups were sworn enemies. And the Lord God of Israel had pronounced his everlasting judgment against the Amalekites because of their aggression to his chosen people. And so that's the reason why in Esther chapter 3 verse 2, Mordecai refuses to kneel down and pay honour to Haman. It wasn't because he had a problem with authority in general. He would have happily bowed down before the king, but he won't bow down before this man Haman, who is an enemy of his people and an enemy of his God. Now at first Haman doesn't even notice. He's so focused on the adulation he's getting from everyone else, he doesn't even notice the Jewish man down the back who's just getting on with his work. But other people notice. They ask Mordecai what's going on. It becomes clear this is all because he's a Jew. And so the others go and tell Haman, there's this Jewish guy who won't bow down to you. What are you going to do about it? And Haman's reaction here shows us that ancient hostility playing out. I reckon if Haman was told, oh, there's an Assyrian guy who won't bow down to you, or there's a a Cushite guy who won't bow down to you, the individual would have been dealt with, and that would have been the end of it. But when Haman, in his position of great power, hears that there is a Jew who won't recognise his authority, he sets his sights on a much greater revenge. He determines he's going to use his great power to wipe out the Jewish people across the entire empire, across all 127 provinces. This is basically every Jewish person in the whole world. Last week we saw the seedy side of the empire and it was confronting. But this is heavier still, isn't it? There's a genocide being planned. What Haman plans here is a great evil. It's what his people have been wanting for centuries. But it's not just that wiping out a whole people group is a great evil. 
is that these people are the representatives of the living and true God. Not because they were better or worthy, but God had adopted them because he had a purpose for them. He had a mission. God had said to Abraham, through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What Haman has in mind here will put an end to those promises of God. No great nation, no blessing for the world. It's not just an attack on God's people. It's an attack on God and his plans. Now, you and I live centuries later after this stuff. We live in a different theological age, actually. Today, the people of God are not a particular ethnic group or geopolitical entity. Today, it's those who recognise Jesus as Lord who are the people of God, adopted into his family. God's people today come from all different nationalities, tribes and languages. We live centuries later in a different theological age, but one thing hasn't changed between then and now. There are forces at work in this world bent on destroying God's people and thwarting God's promises. It's been this way all along. It began with the snake in the garden. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 warns Christians, be alert and of sober mind, your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There are still forces at work bent on destroying God's people and thwarting God's plans. Now, back then, Haman was an Amalekite, but we see him recruiting the Persian Empire to his agenda of destroying God's people. He goes in and talks to King Xerxes, convinced him that there is a dangerous element within his empire. If you look at verse 8, it says, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people and they do not obey the king's laws. It is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. What he says is a mixture of truth, half-truth and outright lies. The Jews, in principle, do keep themselves distinct and have different customs given to them by the Lord. They don't or they shouldn't be worshipping the Persian gods. They have or they should have a distinctive diet and way of life, but there's no way they are a threat to King Xerxes. Last chapter, one of them saved the king's life. This technique of painting a certain group of people as different and therefore dangerous, it's got a long pedigree, hasn't it? We see this all the time through history. You can imagine Haman saying to the king, these people, they're not committed to our values. They are un-Persian. They don't integrate properly into society. They have an oppressively conservative approach to sexuality. They're a threat to our enlightened culture. This strategy has been used against all kinds of groups throughout history. And Christians have definitely been on the receiving end. So Haman warns about this concocted danger. The passive and inattentive King Xerxes is convinced. He says, okay, fine, go ahead. 
And in verse 13, the vast communications apparatus of the empire transmits to all 127 provinces a royal command to destroy, kill and annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, and to plunder their goods on a certain day. And with that business out of the way, verse 15, the king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. Everyone else could see the Jews didn't present a threat to the empire. But the wheels of destruction are already turning. Now, you and I live centuries later in a different theological age. But here's another thing that hasn't changed. The forces in the world that want to destroy God's people and thwart God's plans love to recruit the empires of the world to their cause. The empires of this world, those with real power, they're often not that interested in the people of God per se. They're too busy partying, drinking, showing off their wealth and power to really care. But the opponents of God and his people recruit the empire to their cause. We saw this in the time of Jesus when those opposed to Jesus recruited the Roman Empire to put him to death. The Romans didn't really care about what religious ideas Jesus was teaching. But the Pharisees and Sadducees conspiring against Jesus managed to convince Pontius Pilate to put him to death even though Pontius Pilate knew he was innocent. Empires get recruited. And I reckon in the Western world today, often those with the highest levels of power and influence aren't that bothered about Christianity either way. It's often just seen as a irrelevant little hobby that some people get into. But there are voices strongly opposed to Christianity who are working to get the empire on their side. So let's sum up what we've seen in chapter 3. There are forces in the world strongly hostile to God's people and God's plans and they recruit worldly empires to their cause. As chapter 3 ends, God's people are under grave threat. And in chapter 4 then we see how they respond to that threat. Look at chapter 4 verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Then in verse 3, in every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, if you've read the Bible a bit, you'll recognise this as a common expression of deep grief and horror at some bad news. Sackcloth and ashes weeping and wailing. But there's actually more going on than that. And we get a clue from the wording. The three Hebrew words in verse 3, fasting, weeping and wailing, those three Hebrew words are used together in another part of the Bible, which the original readers of Esther may well have recognised. It's a passage from the prophet Joel. Joel writes at the time when God's people were under judgment, And says, even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, weeping and mourning. Same three words. 
Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing. This fasting, weeping and wailing was directed to God. It was a way of calling on his mercy and compassion in the hope that he might relent from sending calamity. When these people of God are under threat, they call out to him, they turn to him. Will he turn and relent from sending this calamity? Will he provide a way out? Well, Queen Esther hears about the commotion. She doesn't know the full story, but she learns that Mordecai is outside the palace wearing sackcloth and ashes, and her first instinct is, is to send him more, some more comfortable clothes to wear. Oh, you're sitting sackcloth and ashes? Let me send you something better. She doesn't get what's going on. That's been her character so far, just keeping everyone happy. But Mordecai sends back a message explaining everything that's happened. He explains the dire situation. And Mordecai, who is hoping that the Lord might provide a way out, has an idea. Verse 8, he sends the messenger to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Now, previously, Mordecai has told Esther to keep her Jewish identity under wraps. Now he says, it's time to go public. Go and explain who you are. Use your position and your influence to avert this disaster. What's Esther's first reaction? She says, that's impossible. I haven't got the access. You see, there's a law. You can't approach the king without being invited. The penalty is death unless he raises the gold scepter to grant an exemption. And I doubt he'd do that for me. He hasn't paid me any attention at all for 30 days. She says, my hands are tied. But Mordecai argues back. It's probably the most important paragraph of the whole book. Have a look at chapter 4 from verse 13. Mordecai says to Esther, do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your family's house will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Mordecai senses that Esther is being tempted to say, well, that's not my problem. I'm the queen of Persia. She's tempted to remain in the safety of her Persian identity, her cover story. She's been keeping her Jewish heritage under wraps so far. She may well think that she can keep on doing that and stay safe while every other Jew is exterminated. But Mordecai insists that won't work. He insists in verse 14, if you do nothing, you will perish. Now, as I've dug into it, it's not totally clear what sort of scenario Mordecai has in mind here, exactly how and why Esther and her father's house would perish if she stays silent. Remember, Esther's birth parents are dead. Mordecai is the one who's raised her. And so when he says your father's house, he's really talking about himself uh, it's all a bit complex. Uh, 
In the Bible study guide for small groups, I gave one explanation. Last night I started thinking that maybe something else is going on. I'm not going to go into the details this morning. But in any case, his exhortation to Esther is clear. He says, you can't hide. Yes, standing up at this moment carries the risk, the risk of death. But shrinking back at this moment carries the certainty of destruction. That's the choice she faces between standing up, shrinking back. And you and I, as Christian believers today, that's the choice we face. Not usually in the same kind of crisis situation, but day to day, that's the choice we face. To stand up and be counted as God's people, or to shrink back and try to find safety in fitting in with the rest of the world. When the heat is turned up, we have to choose between standing up and shrinking back. Standing up can be very scary. It can be very costly. It can be very dangerous. But choosing the other path, hopping off the train, melding into the crowd instead, the Bible warns us that is the path to destruction. Jesus said in Mark 8, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? He said in Luke 9, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory. We see in the Bible that when hostility reaches a peak, There's actually no safety to be found in shrinking back. It's a word of warning from Mordecai to Esther and to us. And in an amazing turning point in the book, Esther heeds the warning. She steps up. She throws in her lot with the people of God. Until this point, she's been a really passive character. She's always getting pushed around, always being doing what she's told. Now, Queen Esther starts calling the shots. Verse 16, she tells Mordecai the plan. Here's what we're going to do. Go and gather all the Jews in Susa together and fast for me for three days. In the Bible, fasting and prayer to go together. So I think this is about calling on God to protect her and give her success in what she's about to do. She says, I and my attendants will fast too. And after the three days, I will go to the king even though it is against the law. She knows she's doing a risky thing, standing up for the people of God. But she's realised there is no safety to be found anywhere else. She's chosen who she's going to be. She accepts the risks. She says, if I perish, I perish. Now, as we put these pieces together and think about how to respond to it all, as we do that process, it's very tempting to put ourselves in the middle of the picture. Very tempting to hear Mordecai say to Esther, maybe you have come to your royal position for such a time as this and start thinking, hmm, maybe I've come to my position right now for such a time as this. It's not a 100% bad thing to do. But this is one 
main problem with it. Esther is stepping up to be the saviour of God's people. And as we sit here in 2022, we need to remember that the job of saviour is already taken. We need to let Esther's admirable resolve point us to the one who stepped up when hostility towards God reached its highest point ever. God the Son had a position of safety and comfort like no other. He was in very nature God, equal to the Father in dignity and glory. All things were made through him and for him. But he didn't consider that position of comfort and safety as something to be held on to. He made himself nothing, took on the nature of a slave, appeared as a man, humbled himself. As Jesus went around announcing the rule of God, the anti-God forces in the world rose up to destroy him. The Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians conspired together and in the end recruited Pontius Pilate to bring the full might of the Roman Empire crashing down on Jesus. We saw Esther agree to take on the risky task of standing up to save God's people, knowing that it carried the risk of death. But Jesus took on the task of saving God's people, knowing that it carried the certainty of death. In Gethsemane, he prayed in anguish, knowing what lay ahead, and then he went and did it anyway. Esther saved her people from Haman's plot so they could live on for future generations. Jesus saves his people from the clutches of Satan, from the guilt of sin, from the sentence of eternal death, so we can live eternally. Esther used her position to fearfully enter into the presence of King Xerxes to beg for mercy. Jesus enters with confidence into the throne room of God himself and uses his position to usher us in with him. You and I, all these centuries later, we can see the one greater than Queen Esther. The job of saviour is taken. But in the ultimate security that we have as saved people, we're still called to courage, to stand up, not to shrink back, Maybe when a particularly crucial moment comes along, God has put us where we are for such a moment as this. Maybe this is the moment to do good in Jesus' name. The moment to reveal that our true allegiance is to Jesus and not to the kingdoms of this world. The moment to speak up about our courageous King who suffered death to save us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we rejoice in the Saviour greater than Esther. And we thank you for the way that her story points us to him. In light of what he's achieved for us by his courage, help us to courageously stand up as your people. Own who we are, who you have made us and know the joy of your eternal kingdom. Amen.